listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. It's the last show of the year and we're actually going to look at something that I thought was good fun. It's a story I heard about on Twitter uh, back uh, near the start of the month, as all good stories uh, start. Uh, this is a story that combines two seemingly very different fields of research. One is interstellar visitors coming from afar, uh, and the other is uh, simulating galaxies in computers. So one is very small scale, one is very large scale uh, in astronomical sensors. And we'll find out a little bit about how those uh, two fields of research have met uh, recently. Uh, to explore this, I'm joined by uh, two people. Uh, one is uh, Professor Chris Lintot from the University of Oxford. Uh, welcome, Chris. Hiya. Uh, and the other is Dr. Ted uh, Macarth from the University of Toronto. Welcome, Ted. Chris, we talked about interstellar visitors. This is something uh, we've covered before. People may remember uh, casting their minds back to about 2017, I think it was, when an object called Oumuamua uh, passed through the solar system. Rather unusual uh, in its uh, origin. So what was Oumuamua and what have we, uh, and, and why was it not the first? So I, the most interesting thing about Oumuamua, which was immediately obvious when it was discovered, was its trajectory. So it was on a orbit that didn't look like anything we'd seen before. In fact, it was an orbit that showed that it came from beyond the solar system. So that rather wonderful Hawaiian name, Oumuamua, means the scout from very, very far away. Um, and so this is the first interstellar object that we've detected. Um, I think people had thought that such things might exist. We know that in the early solar system, there were probably many, many more um, comets and bits of rubble than exist in our solar system today. So we think that part of the planet forming process expels these things into the galaxy, but we've never seen one before. And we might have expected Oumuamua to be rather like a, a small comet. Actually, it proved to be really unusual. So the first thing that astronomers noticed, and we never saw it as anything other than a point of light, but the, the brightness of the point of light was changing. And from that, you can guess at the shape. And what seemed to fit was that this is a sort of cigar-shaped object tumbling end over end uh, as it passed through the solar system. Um, it also didn't behave like a comet. It didn't grow a tail or anything like that. And no one detected any gas um, or a coma, the atmosphere that you, you see around a comet when it gets close to the sun. Um, and there's a big argument going on about, about why that was and, and, and what this thing was, was made of. So it's an intriguing object, but it was really, it really was the first of its kind. It, it's this first interstellar object. It wasn't the last, no, exactly. So um, a, few, a year or two later, 2019, I think, we got comet Borisov, discovered by a Russian amateur astronomer, um, and this was another interstellar object. Again, we know that because of the path with which it was moving. Borisov was a much more normal object. It looked um, like a, a comet and basically behaved as a normal comet. Um, so we've now got two of these things. One of the things you can deduce from that, astronomers are great at jumping to conclusions from only two objects. One of the things you can deduce from this is that these things must be pretty common. For us to have already found two, despite the fact that they're faint, um, and difficult to see because they move through the solar system pretty quickly. We think that there may be many, many of, of, of these things out there. And one estimate, and um, this is the fact that got me thinking about these things because I found it so astounding. One estimate is that every solar system donates about a trillion of these to the, to, to the background of the Milky Way. Um, and you need that many for us to have been able to see 
uh, too. So this is a common thing in the galaxy. Though there's almost certainly one of these objects passing through the solar system right now. We just haven't seen it because it's too small and faint and moving quickly. Um, but we've never had a chance to study them until just the last few years. And we'll come on to uh, what they tell us about solar systems uh, shortly. Uh, now, Ted, your uh, side of this story is on a somewhat larger scale. So you look at uh, uh, simulations of galaxies. Now, we have a perfectly good galaxy uh, sitting around us now. Um, why simulate more? Yeah, that's a good question. So simulating galaxies is is an important thing because you want to be able to essentially kind of turn back the clock and run a simulation and see if you get out what, what you expect to see in the real universe, right? So the fact you said we've got a, a perfectly good galaxy around us now, <laughs> that's that's all well and good, but it's no, no use if you can't understand how it came to be like that. And that's exactly why simulation is so useful. Because of course, if you've you start from initial conditions, which you think represent the early universe, and you run that simulation forward to get to something that looks kind of like what the Milky Way looks like or what the population of galaxies in our universe today looks like, then you think maybe you've got the physics right and you learn something about how galaxies come to be in the real universe. So that's where my, where my kind of uh, research is, is focused is really actually understanding how galaxies like the Milky Way come about in these really large volume uh, simulations. So. Simulations you can run on multiple different sort of levels. Um, and the ones that I'm using are what we call cosmological simulations, which is essentially uh, you start from a, a huge uh, volume of, of gas in your computer. You just say this is gas and dark matter in a big cube. Um, and you just put in the ingredients for gravity and a, um, a load of different models for this, what we call the subgrid uh, physics, which is the, the physics that we can't resolve in the simulations because the particles are sort of too big to resolve. And we just run uh, these simulations forward in time, allowing those subgrid models for the physics to, to occur on these small scales. Um, and you, in that large volume, you end up uh, producing a population uh, of galaxies, uh, which we hope represents the real universe. And we calibrate the simulations until we get, for example, the, the mass distribution of galaxies to match the, the mass distribution of galaxies in the real universe. And then everything else you get out of the simulations is a prediction. So we hope then that the simulations have a sort of representative set of galaxies with realistic star formation histories that represent the real universe. And some of those look kind of like the Milky Way. Um, and one of the really interesting things from my early research during my PhD was that we found in this very specific set of simulations, the Eagle simulations, um, that actually very few of the galaxies that looked like the Milky Way. We only found about six out of 131 candidates um, looked like the Milky Way in terms of their element abundances. And this is kind of why um, we, we ended up using these simulations for this project was because it was there's this large representative sample of galaxies, but very few that actually looked like the Milky Way. So we were able to, to go and sit and, and look, in, look at those galaxies and, and see if they were they had representative sort of star for me. Now, now, when you say chemical uh, abundances and chemical composition, what kind of things are we talking about here so so the, the universe itself is hydrogen and helium by and large that's what the universe uh, contains but you're talking about all the the interesting stuff beyond that which is a, a phrase that i'm sure lots of cosmologists will balk out but um all the other heavier <laughs> elements what what kind of things are we talking about exactly so i mentioned the subgrid models in the simulations which uh, are the, the the physics which is put into the simulations the, the equations that we we expect to work to generate things like stars so you need a, any uh, a recipe if you like to convert the gas in the simulations into stars 
Um, and it, through doing that, we also have to then track the abundances of different elements. So you mentioned hydrogen and helium. So the simulations start off, as I said, at a big volume of gas and dark matter. And most of those gas particles in the simulation have just hydrogen and helium. Uh, and then as the, the particles in the simulation start turning from gas into stars, those stars begin producing elements in supernovae, um, uh, which eject those elements out into the, into the interstellar medium of the simulations. Uh, and so those elements are the ones which are heavier than hydrogen and helium, um, like, for example, iron uh, in, a, in a big way. So iron is one of the, the elements which is produced mainly in type 1a supernovae and ejected into the interstellar medium. Um, and so it's those elements that we're really interested in for this project, because, of course, those heavier elements are really what form the building blocks of planetary systems and then tell you what eventually the, the element abundance uh, structure of, of planetary systems would be. Um, and so obviously, as the stars then evolve through the simulations, those elements all evolve in kind of complex ways due to the different types of supernovae that are occurring in the stars and the different types of, of feedback that you're getting in the stellar populations of the simulations. And so those, those element abundances end up looking quite different from galaxy to galaxy, uh, depending on the histories of star formation. So sort of di different generations of stars at different times will produce different amounts of different elements like iron, um, and also things like magnesium uh, and uh, oxygen, which, which are what we call alpha elements, producing the triple alpha process, which occurs in the core collapses. In a bit. So we have this this evolving chemical composition as galaxies evolve as they as they form these new generations of stars. And Chris, this comes back to these uh, planetesimals and and interstellar objects because uh, that chemical composition from which all this stuff is made is is kind of key to what these things could possibly look like, isn't it? Right, that, that, that's right. I mean, we should say that. So this this project came about um, because I went drinking with uh, Michelle Bannister, who's an expert on things like Oumuamua, um, and, and we'll talk maybe a bit about how she got interested in this later on. But Michelle and I were were wondering whether we could use the kind of models that Ted works on to predict what we might see in the population of interstellar objects. And luckily, lots of other people have done a huge amount of work that we can use. So we've got the big simulations that Ted talked about, which get you down to sort of the composition of a forming planetary system, or at least a stellar and planetary system. And then people like uh, Bertram Beach uh, built models that we can use that tell you for a given set of ingredients, they have a recipe that tells you what kind of planetesimal form uh, in the disk. So um, obviously that depends, maybe not obviously, but it does depend on your distance from the star. Close in, you uh, heat the ingredients a bit differently than, than further out. So you have to worry about where in the disk you are, but you can predict um, the chemical composition of the rubble that you form in the disk. And people do this because they want to go on and predict what kinds of planet might form. We're beginning to see um, possibly that different types of planet live around different types of star. And so, so that's the kind of thing you want to predict. We didn't do that. What we could do is take uh, the rubble, assume that the stuff that forms in the outer disk for now is thrown out into the solar system and then say, okay, that's our population of interstellar objects and, and we can see what we can predict. And when we did this, um, the results uh, were, were actually quite surprising. Um, what we find is that you have two populations of interstellar objects. Um, they're either um, made mostly of water or they come from a population where there's relatively little water uh, compared to the other elements because um, whether you end up on one side of the line or the other is, is driven by the details of the chemistry 
in the disc. So we have to do a bit of astrochemistry to understand what's going on. And we find you're either very water rich or you're uh, relatively water poor. So we predict what we call a binomial distribution. So we can say that if everything in that long chain of inference is right, if Ted's models are right, if we're good at understanding uh, which ones match the Milky Way, if all the stars contribute, if the chemistry in the models that we're using is correct, and um, you draw most of your interstellar objects from the planetesimals that form in the outer disk, then you mix them up completely so that you get a random draw from any star in the system, rather than, for example, only detecting interstellar objects from nearby stars. If all of that's true, then we can make a prediction that as we find more of these things, we'll see them on either side of this line. They'll either be very water-rich or very water-poor. Um, whether that's right or not, I don't know. And that's why I think this project's been been so much fun. It's it's rare, I think, in astronomy, and certainly rare in my career, to actually make a prediction. So, so we put this out there and said, okay, in the next few years, we will build telescopes that will get, not us, but there will be telescopes that get better at detecting these things and and we will be proved right or or wrong and, and you said that, that this is all to do with whether they're water water rich or water water poor when we look at these objects we see them as a as a point of light we uh, i guess borisov the second object we saw with a, a bit of a, a coma an atmosphere and a tail and uh, and so on but we don't see much detail so can we look at these things and i mean the things ted talked about of the oxygen and the magnesium and and, and so on can we do that kind of analysis well, that's why we started with water for now, because um, certainly when you look at comets, that's almost the first thing you go looking for and, and working out how much water there might be in Umumur and Borisov is something that people were already doing. So by our standards, um, both of the two that we've seen so far fall on the water poor side of the line. And our model tells us that one explanation for that might be that they come from stars that formed relatively recently in the Milky Way's history. So because we've plugged the models together, we can see the water-rich uh, interstellar objects tend to form early on in gas that hasn't been enriched by many generations of star formation. So whereas the water-poor ones come from stars that have formed recently. So, you know, we've got, we're predicting two kinds of object. We've got two, that's like tossing a coin twice and getting heads twice, something like that. <laughs> um, I think the odds are about a little less than that, but that, that's about right. So we can't really say whether our model is biased or not, but that didn't stop us speculating. It's nice to be at the start of something. So um, we managed to sneak into the paper a suggestion that I really love, which, which may be nonsense, um, which says, okay, so so we haven't seen any of these water-rich ones yet. Why, why is that? Well, they form in the early stages of our galaxy's history. So one possible difference might also be that if they're poor in, in in sort of heavy elements, they may also be poor in dust. Um, so, so they may be almost pure balls of water ice. Now, if you imagine one of those approaching the sun, um, it's not going to be able to shield itself from the sun's radiation in the way that dust acts within normal comets. So these things may just dissolve, sublimate on the outskirts of the solar system. So we can um, with a very long list of caveats, predict the possibility of a new type of comet, one sort of the puniest comets in the universe that, that get near the solar system and, and then uh, evaporate like an ice cream on a, on a hot summer's day. Um, so, so we managed to sneak that into paper. So if in 10 years' time we found lots of these things, then um, we will look very clever. It's more likely, I think, that we don't understand the modelling or that we need to to just be patient and and wait and see if the third or fourth or fifth one falls in this this other category uh, but at least we've made a start at, at testing this prediction and and ted i mean you, you you work on these big simulations uh is this the kind of thing you thought 
did you expect to get involved in talking about interstellar objects that on the scale of you know kilometers in size rather than you know millions of light years absolutely not no no yeah this was a real sort of shocker when i got this email from chris saying you know oh me and michelle banished to work on this project with with interstellar objects and we want to use the simulations that you wrote this paper on i was sort of i almost emailed back saying i know this, this is not going to work but then obviously <laughs> we then chatted about it a bit and it became clear that actually you know these simulations are a really useful tool actually for even understanding these very small scales so something that i didn't mention was that the simulations really only resolve stars at the level of sort of stellar clusters so in the simulations a galaxy is actually made up of all of these uh, particles which are sort of like we, what we call star particles which are all about uh, a million solar masses um, and so therefore each particle in the simulations is actually representing the whole population of stars and not a single stellar uh, systems um, and so what that, that was what triggered my initial fear was that you know we're not resolving these like initial you know, these these small solar systems let alone these these small uh, interstellar objects if you like but actually just by making some assumptions on the fact like as chris mentioned that each of each stellar system which is which is making up these star particles produces some 10 trillion uh, isos you were we were able to kind of say well actually you can kind of you know use these star particles as a kind of a uh, blurry tracer of the ISO population and then understand, you know, uh, based on what star particles we have in these galaxies, what, what which ISOs were coming from where and, and how what, how those the ISO populations in those galaxies would actually look. And it, um, we think that's a relatively good assumption to make because these things should be sort of well mixed. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I was very kind of like uh, <laughs> sort of dubious about this for a while, but then, you know, thinking more and more about it, we then realized that because these simulations, as I mentioned, are these sort of large volume simulations where you produce a whole population of galaxies, not just a single galaxy. Um, so, you know, many, many sort of, uh, uh, detailed simulations that resolve stellar systems, you know, at a higher level of detail than, than the Eagle simulations um, can only, you know, because these cost so much money to run, they take months and months to run on supercomputers. You can only run sort of like 10 of those, of these sort of isolated single galaxy simulations. But the advantage of a simulation like Eagle, which is obviously looking at things in this kind of low resolution way, is that you produce hundreds of galaxies. And so you've got this kind of statistical sample that you can go and look at. So we treated each of the galaxies in this sort of sample from the simulations like a kind of uh, individual model of its own. And so you've got this ensemble of models where you've got many different kind of uh, possibilities for what the Milky Way could have looked like. So, so Chris mentioned that the results from our papers sort of suggest that the two ISOs that we've already detected were very water poor. So that might mean that there was sort of some more recent star formation in the Milky Way. And the reason we were able to say that was that we, we had galaxies from Eagle that recently had star formation. And we saw that most of the interstellar objects that you would find if you were sort of sitting in this on the sun in those uh, galaxies would actually produce these these more water poor populations of interstellar objects um, and so i think that's a really cool sort of idea you know this idea of going from cosmology cosmological simulations down to planetary systems i think is just such an exciting thing um, and actually you know being able to make these constraints on different scales is, is something that i've always been interested in in my research so uh, and but i never thought i'd be going this low i've, I've always thought you know i'm kind of connecting milky way formation to the general galaxy population but i never thought i'd be connecting actually the solar system's formation to the galaxy formation which we're then connecting to the you know so it's, it's really cool it's a very sort of new and exciting thing yeah and what's nice about that as, as ted says is that i don't think our prediction will be right certainly not in detail but if it's wrong we can look at why it's wrong and so 
if we're wrong, which we almost certainly are, then either we there's something we don't understand about galactic dynamics, how stuff moves around the galaxy, or there's something we don't understand about the process of planet formation, or there's something we don't understand about the Milky Way <laughs> and its structure. So we've sort of got three chances to to um, throw a sledgehammer at, at, at some of what we think we understand in, in modern physics using a type of observation that no one else is, is thinking about, like, because no one else was quite mad enough to connect all of the, all of these scales. And, uh, you know, uh, these things may be even even more interesting. So the, the thing that got me intrigued was this work by our collaborator, Michelle Bannister with Suzanne Feltzer, uh, where they looked at what would happen if interstellar objects crashed into a disk of material around a young star, the kind of protoplanetary disk that we think goes on to, to form form planets. Um, there's a problem with planet formation, which Chris, you and I have talked about over over many years. In fact, we, we did a demo on the sky at night that showed some of this, where we could get bits of dust to stick together. Like the chemistry makes sense. And these are icy dust particles. So they're, they're sort of sticking. So you can assemble things that are sort of boulder sized within these disks, but it's quite hard to get two boulders to stick together. If you crash them together, you get more bits of rubble, not a bigger boulder. Mm. Once you get up to things that are sort of building sized, you crash two of those together, there's enough gravity that you can sort of hold the stuff together. You get a rubble pile and you could go on to build uh, planet sized things, but we don't really understand how to efficiently jump that gap. And that gap is roughly where the size of things like Oumuamua sit. So, so Michelle and her friends had said, okay, if there are so many of these traveling through the galaxy and they pass through these forming solar systems, you could seed the next generation of planets with uh, rubble from the previous generation. You've got to start somewhere, mm -hmm. uh, but once you kickstart this process, you, you, you'd be able to influence planet formation in this way. And I think that's just such an intriguing and interesting idea um, that I yeah, when I first did it, I, I thought it must be nonsense. And I started talking to Michelle about all the things that might be wrong with it based on you know, my knowledge of star formation, but they're, they're slowly working on it. I think it's, it, it looks still looks plausible. No one's managed to explain why that wouldn't work. Um, and so it's another sign that, that these things really connect the galaxy. They're, they're, they're sort of samples of what's happening across the galaxy delivered to us. All we've got to do is go, go and look for them. They may help us understand all sorts of processes that otherwise um, we find it quite difficult to get information about. There are all sorts of theories about how, you know, life gets seeded through the galaxy by being carried on these things. And, and so this is uh, this is planets being seeded, you know, not even like this is yes. just the formation of planets potentially being seeded, which is which is good fun. But as you say, all I mean, maybe speculative is a bit harsh. Uh, no, it's this, definitely speculative. It's, okay, Absolutely. great. So very speculative. And you mentioned all the assumptions that go into this. I mean, that's, it, it sounds, to some people, it might sound weird to put out a theory, to put out a research paper saying, here's something that we're pretty sure is wrong. Um, <laughs> but but that's actually, a lot of the time, that's what happens, right? Particularly with very observational sciences, such as, such as astronomy, where you make a prediction and then go and test it and see whether it's right or not. Um, I don't know what the statistic is about whether more, than, more often than not, these things are, are actually oh, wrong. I, I would bet and... that almost everything astronomers say is wrong in the long run. <laughs> that, that, and that's, that's half the fun. Um, I, I think what, what, I think you have to be clear why you're doing this. Like Speculation is fun. Um, but, but I think for this to be useful speculation, I, I think what we did do, and we did pretty well, was we made the simplest assumption we could. Uh, at every point. And I, I think 
if you're trying to come up with a theory for a new phenomenon, in this case, we're trying to explain the, the population of interstellar objects that we see, I think you should be driven to complexity. So, you know, my model could involve um, a magical goblin that sits outside the solar system that decides which interstellar objects to let past and which not to. But I'm not going to invoke the presence of the magical interstellar object sorting goblin until my observations make it clear that I really need an, ob a, a, an inference that, that is that complex. Similarly, um, I think that you could say that the interstellar objects are some exotic sampling of their protoplanetary disk. So, for example, you could say that there's some sort of chemistry that makes an object more likely to be hoiked out of the disk and, and contribute to the interstellar object population. But I, with the data we've got, the two objects we've seen, we don't need to make that assumption. And so I, I think that that makes that reasonable. I think the one exception to this, the, the place where I've become convinced that we were too simple, and Ted, you, I'd be, we've sort of half talked about this, but I'd be interested in what you thought. Um, this assumption <laughs> that we're mixing the whole galaxy. So we've got a PhD student, Matthew Hopkins, working on this now, because um, once you need to do the detailed work, you need to get a student in. Um, and, and Matthew's done some work in the past on how stuff moves around the galaxy, modeling data uh, from the Gaia satellite. And I think he's convinced me that we need to think harder about how far these interstellar objects can travel in the age of the solar system and, and the age of, of their lifetime. So, so I think we do need to look again at this mixing assumption. So is that something that your simulation does then? Do you look at, can you say from your simulations whether the stuff is mixed uh, in the whole galaxy or does it, is it more local? Yeah, to some extent, this is one of the, the big caveats of these kind of lower resolution or, or large volume, slightly lower resolution simulations is that you can't really kind of pick these things because you're not resolving individual stellar systems moving around the galaxy. The dynamics are not quite where you would want them to be. So to do this in a really detailed way, we're going to have to go to slightly higher resolution simulations or maybe take galaxies out of our large volume thing, kind of re-simulate them at higher resolution. Um, and so, but yeah, I think this is one of the really... The, the, just to sort of go back to where we were before, just the fact that there's so many simple assumptions we made means that there's like so much physics to learn in this kind of project, which is what makes it so sort of exciting for me in the sense is that putting out a paper with kind of that we think is wrong is essentially like saying, hey, look at all this stuff we've got to learn and let's go and do it. <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, so Matthew, this PhD student that, that we've... Uh, we've managed to wrangle into doing this for us. Uh, it's got, gonna have a wild ride. And so, yeah, I think this this idea of, of um, the mixing of the interstellar objects in the galaxy is gonna be a very difficult problem to solve, um, but almost definitely has some effect because we already know that gap, that stars in the Milky Way are mixing radially in the disk by various processes, things like the bar kind of shoves stars around in the disk and they all kind of re reorder themselves in a sense. Um, in order to kind of react to these dynamical perturbations of the bar and the spiral arms and the satellite galaxies. So this is the the churning of stuff in the in just generally mixing it around. Yeah, churning. Yeah, so churning is one of the words that we use to describe these processes. So you actually get these two things called blurring and churning, and they're very different processes that produce kind of different effects uh, in the stellar populations. But of course, the ISOs are going to be doing the same things because they're just they're dynamical traces, just like the stars are, uh, and so. We can kind of constrain this a little bit by 
understanding what the stars are doing a little bit more. Um, but then, you know, the, the other big question is, are, are the ISOs actually doing the same thing? Because, of course, they're getting ejected from the stellar systems. So they're all going to be on slightly different orbits. And so uh, another component of this is figuring out, you know, once these ISOs get ejected from the stellar systems, do they end up moving along with the star for a while or do they just get kicked out somewhere else entirely and then when they get to the sun and we're observing them with things like the Vera Rubin observatory are they going to be on the same orbit that, <laughs> that we expect them to be on so when we see one coming into the solar system can we really make some claim about like, oh yeah we think this came from some stellar population somewhere so there's just so many layers to the to the to the model um but you know, it's kind of daunting, but it's also and, very exciting. And, and of course, because, if, you know, this is if if the type of interstellar object you are is determined by the kind of star that you formed around, then maybe different types of interstellar object will come in on different orbits. So I think we managed to sneak right. that sentence past the referee as well as another. <laughs> we've, we've we've laced the paper <laughs> with things that we will selectively quote in ten years' time, I think, and say, "See, we anticipated yeah. this." <laughs> but, but yeah, but, but, but as you can hear, I think. I, I don't think I've always liked projects that cross a, a wide range of, of of fields, but I think we're all having fun with this because we're all learning stuff. We're all slightly out of our comfort zone, and um, you need the third member of the the trio. You need Michelle here to be telling Ted and I that we don't understand anything about small <laughs> bodies or, or rocks or geology or uh, the chemistry that produces them uh, uh, as well. But but a project like I, I love the fact that these things travelled. Uh, perhaps for billions of years across the galaxy, and the net result is that I suddenly have to go back and revise my A-level chemistry. I think is is pretty fun. It's not the only effect of an interstellar object being discovered, but but I'm enjoying it. Now, in in future years, uh, we're going to find uh, we we think uh, many many more of these, and that's because the the technology and the observations to try and find these are, are coming on a pace with new techniques and also new observatories. So so Chris, this is something that's that's changing all the time. The next few years are going to be uh, a bit of a boon for interstellar object science, I guess. I think so, uh, assuming they're there and they are as frequent as our, as the models predict. So this is the territory of Michelle, our collaborator, and her friends. But I think in particular, the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is this eight and a bit metre telescope that's now really um, nearly complete in construction in Chile, um, will really help here. It's a survey telescope, so it scans the whole sky roughly every three nights. Um, and we hope that over the course of its survey, um, it may find 100 or, or maybe even more inter interstellar objects. And lots of those you find early on in, in the survey, we think. Um, so, so in a couple of years' time, we should have 10 a year or something turning up, um, which will allow us to really start testing some of the wilder predictions that we make. Um, I have a, a, a secret hope, which is, that there's an ESA mission, a European Space Agency mission being built called Comet Interceptor. Uh, and Comet Interceptor is an amazing idea. It's Colin Snodgrass and Grant Jones for, from the UK are leading this mission. Um, so the idea is that rather than like Rosetta did, um, target a mission to a comet that you've already discovered, what you really want to see is a pristine object, either a comet that's on its way into the solar system, for the inner solar system for the first time, or one of these interstellar objects. So you launch your spacecraft, and then it just hangs out and waits until something interesting is discovered, and then you zip off to go and investigate it. So there's a possibility that Comet Interceptor will go and chase down one of these interstellar objects. Um, and then we'd be able to get lots more detail on the chemistry uh, of such an object and, and maybe uh, use that to test the, the details of our model as well. So um, maybe one day we'll actually get to fly 
uh, to one of these things. And I think that 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 all really highlights that the, this is a um, and you went there were three people on this this paper. So the, the two of you, so Ted, looking at the the formation of of uh, stars and the evolution of galaxies over billions of years. Uh, Chris, you looked at some of the sort of the astrochemistry and and how these things interact, and then. Uh, Michelle Bannister, who's looking at the observations and finding these things and what, what we can actually learn from. So there's three different uh, aspects of this that have all kind of uh, come together and all brought different assumptions and theories yeah, to the that's uh, right. The and, and, and I had to find a language that works for everyone. You know, even yeah. chemistry is contested. Right? I think that means different <laughs> things to all three of us. So, but yeah, that's been, been half the fun. We did tell uh, Matthew, our PhD student, that only three people in the world cared about this, and he could be the fourth, which was a surprisingly successful sales pitch. But hopefully, uh, now now we've talked to people about it and and got the paper out there, there are a few more than four of us who are interested in putting interstellar objects in a galactic context. Well, call me number five. Sounds good. We'll we'll give you send you your 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 badge shortly. We should have a club for these people. Excellent. Well, it sounds like a fun project, and uh, uh, maybe next year or the next few years uh, we'll uh, perhaps find more of these objects and test all those theories and prove which of the myriad of ways you're wrong uh, with your predictions. Uh, and uh, and and or maybe you never know. There is an outside chance that um, perhaps uh, uh, bits of it are indeed correct, and so we'll have to come back and speak to the trio uh, in future years to find out. Uh, uh, what the what the result is when we found more of these interstellar objects. So uh, Ted Macareth, uh, Chris Lintor, thanks very much. No, thank you very much. Cheers. That's it for this month, and in fact for this year. Don't forget, you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk, or you can find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next year, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.